I'm glad you're here. We're going to jump in. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I want to discuss today, uh, including just just what it how to learn basically. Just the just the best way, the best approach to to learning, um, uh, especially in the in the Torah context, and and how to connect to the Torah itself, how to connect to each other. Uh, and also just our, our travels in this world. Um, there's, uh, we're, we just started a, a new book of the Torah, uh, Sefer Bamidbar, also known as the Book of Numbers. Also known, my Rebbe would describe it uh, as the Book of Mistakes, because it, it lists not just the, the travels of the Jewish people throughout their 40 years in the desert, but also all of the great mistakes that we made as a people. And, and there, these travels going from Egypt into the land of Israel are a microcosm of every human being's travels in this world. So, so it's, uh, it's worth looking into, and, and, and we'll, we'll spend some time on that as well. But, but the, the first thing that I, I, I want to talk about is, is just, I want to say over a beautiful Torah that I just learned um, from in the name of the Sfas Emes, uh, he was the the second Ger Rebbe. He was the grandson of the Chedusha Rim, the first Ger Rebbe, and um, and I heard this from Rabbi Shalom Brat, and uh, just just a just a gorgeous piece of Hasidus. I think a classic piece of Hasidus, um, and it goes like this. It's a famous famous section from the Talmud which involves uh, someone who's converting to Judaism. And the, the, the account goes that this person came to Hillel, who was the leader of the Jewish people, and uh, along with Shammai, and he goes up to Hillel and he says, I, I, I'm going to convert to, to Judaism, I want to convert to Judaism, um, uh, but contingent on one thing, that you can teach me the entire Torah standing on one foot. So, so this is... And then the story goes on from there. And he, what he tells him, very amazingly, is that don't do what's repugnant to yourself, to other people. You know? Which is, by the way, a very different from the way that's often quoted, which is, do unto others as, as you'd like them to do unto you. Again, the, the phrasing of Hillel was, don't do what's repugnant to you, to other people. And that might sound like the same idea, but it's actually a vastly different construct and, and much more practical and helpful the way Hillel is saying it. And I'll just tell you the difference, just so we can zero in on it. You see, there, there's an amazing um, Rashi uh, when, when Lovin is chasing after Yaakov. And he wants to, Yaakov is finally leaving Lovin's house and just trying to get away from him. And of course, Lovin is, uh, Kabbalistically, is compared to, he, he's a re, he becomes reincarnated as Bilam, who tries to wipe out the whole Jewish people and curse them all. And they say he's a descendant of the snake from the Garden of Eden, just in terms of his energy. So Lovin is really, like, Bad, bad news. He, people don't really talk about him too much, but he's, he was really bad. He basically tried to eliminate the whole Jewish people when they were just one family with Jacob. He wanted to get rid of them at the outset, but didn't succeed. And as he's chasing down Yaakov to try to just wipe him out, he has a vision. God comes to him in a vision, and, he's, and God says to him in a dream, he says, don't say either good or bad to Yaakov, to Jacob. And Rashi explains, so what does that mean? Don't say good or bad. I mean, let him say good, right? Why are you ruling out him saying good? I mean, that would show, remember, we never pray for the death of a sinner. Quote, unquote, sinner. That's a horrible word, but nonetheless, just in terms of shorthand. We say that the person should stop doing those things, right? In other words, let the person transform. So, so if... Lovin, of all people, is going to transform and say something good. Let him say something good. That, that seems to be the ideal. So why is God saying to him, don't say anything good or bad? 
And Rashi explains, and it's a wonderful insight into cor- corruption, <laughs> which is the following, that what's good for an evil person is bad for a good person. And what's good for a... And, and the other way around, I forgot how I started. <laughs> what's, what's, what's bad for him is good for us, and what's good for him is bad for us. So in other words, his reference points are so twisted that, you know what, don't say anything good or bad. You know what, just, just keep your mouth shut. That's, 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 that's the, that, that, that will be the shortest path to success for you. You know, don't say anything. So, so anyway, going back to this, um, to this, to this initial idea, um, we have, we have this person who, who wants to be a Jew, who is asking, just standing on one foot, teach me the entire Torah. Now, how is that possible? Because people who, we know that the Torah is bigger than this entire world. The, the, God looked into the Torah and made the world. So, so people who dedicate themselves to Torah their entire lives and learn all day and all night can't finish the entire Torah. All that's there. It's infinite. You know, I just tell you, you hear stories like this, but I can tell you in my own family, my, it's my wife's family, but her grandfather, so this is not going back so far, her grandfather learned 18 hours a day, and he was one of those people who put his feet in a bucket of ice water in order to stay awake during his learning. So this is um, until recently. And I'm sure there are people who are doing this today that we don't know about, you know? The real people you find out about much later, you know? There's someone, believe me, right this second who's sitting in B'nai Brock or something like this with his feet in ice water, you know? And he probably has a little blanket over his lap so that the other people don't see that his feet are in ice water, you know? Believe me, this stuff is going on. It's, it's going on today. But anyway... So if someone like this, who's learning their entire life, can't finish the entire Torah, how do you learn the whole Torah while standing on one foot? And, uh, and so what Hillel tells him back is, don't do what's repugnant to other people. To, don't do what's repugnant to you to other people. You see, now we can return back to why I brought up Lovin, which is which is the following thing. You see, do, if, you, if you phrase it this way, do unto others as they'd like you to do unto you, I love heroin. <laughs> Yay, heroin. You're, you know what? You, you don't know about heroin yet. You know why? Because you're only nine. <laughs> Let me share this great gift of the poppy plant with you. Right? So when you, when you, when, when, when you have a twisted notion of morality... So, do unto others as you'd like them to do. I would love for someone to give me a packet of heroin. <laughs> so, shouldn't I do unto others as I'd like others to do unto me? All right, obviously I'm giving you a, an extreme absurd example right now. But just to make the point. You see, when you get into that level of relativity, then, you know what? I don't want your good. I don't want Lovin's good. Right? But... Listen to the way Hillel phrased it. It's so much more practical. What's repugnant to you, don't do unto others. You know what? You know what I really hate? When business associates stab me in the back. (laughs) You know what? I'm not going to do that to you. That's something I guarantee you other people are going to appreciate. See, that's, that's... So like I say, that makes all the world of difference. It takes... And, and you see right there a, a moment of Judaism at work, of Torah at work. And what I mean by that is you see not just a high-minded idea, but you see the utter practicality of the way it's articulated and the way that um, we, we get a set of instructions. See, this is the greatness of Torah. And, and a lot of people, it, it short-circuits their brains, especially when they start coming close to Judaism. And it's sort of like they, they have a nice Shabbos experience, they, they have some chicken soup, and then they want more, and then they find out 
all of this halacha, and they they want to they want to run for the nearest couch to hide under it. You know, it's like what you know. But the thing is, is that what's so beautiful about Torah is that is that the idea is that God fills the entire universe, and there's no such thing as a secular moment. See, people think that God exists when I'm in shul, right? Or God exists when I'm thinking about him. Or God exists when I see a sunset or a rainbow or a shooting star, right? And then I get to go back to reality, quote unquote, and I'm on my own. But the reality is that the God who creates this world and who keeps this world going, who created you and who keeps you going, is constantly present. So that's what it means that there's no such thing as a secular moment. But, but more than that, it means that there's a way of elevating every single moment in your life, no matter how seemingly mundane. So that's why, you know, I always like to share it with groups, that that's why that there's even a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes. And if you don't know it, you put on your right sock first, and then your left sock, then your right shoe, then your left shoe, then it switches. Then you tie your left shoe, you tie your right shoe. Okay, I'll say that again. Put on your right sock first, and then your left sock, your right shoe, and then your left shoe. Tie your left shoe first, and then your right shoe. And there's a lot of explanations for this. But when I was young, the, the person just gave me this one explanation. And he said, you know, because if you put on your right sock and your left, your right sock and your right shoe, then your other foot is going to feel bad. You know, because one's all dressed and prepared and the other one is not. And you know, it's possible that he made a Torah Jew out of me that moment with that explanation. You know, it's deeper than that. But I thought to myself, you mean Torah is, goes to that depth and level of sensitivity? It's that sensitive? It cares that much? That's, that has to be the truth. It has to be the truth. And so, so the notion that there's so much halacha, that there's so much, that, there, that there's so many instructions for every moment of our life, that's because whatever we're doing, even if it's putting up on our socks and shoes or moving pots around on a stove on Shabbos or whatever it is, whatever we're doing, there ha- if you think about it, if God is there at that moment, there has to be a way to elevate that moment, to sanctify that moment, no matter how mundane. So now let's go back to, and again, just to finish the point, this is the beauty of Torah, that it's not just platitudes, it's not just these high-minded ideas, but it's also the way to enact them in the world that you have that, that beautiful spectrum of idea into reality. And it doesn't, it doesn't just stop at, oh, you know, war is dangerous for people and other living things. That's a beautiful bumper sticker. But you know what? I want Hitler dead. I want Hitler dead before he starts doing even worse things. I have to go to war in certain instances. So don't tell me war is horrible for flowers when the whole world is going to be turned into this dystopian, genocidal nightmare. Pick up a gun and kill the guy. Right? I mean, that's, of course, you know, there are laws to the state, and I'm not advocating vigilantism or anything against the law here. But what I'm saying is, is that bumper stickers... And, and, and sane national foreign policy are two different things. And you have to know each situation, what, what has to be done in each situation. And obviously you have to obey the laws of the land. Obviously. In fact, we go further. We, we you know, Jewish people in synagogues all over the world pray. It's in the prayer book itself. Pray for the success of the government. And it says in the Talmud itself, in Perkei Avos, that if it wasn't for the government, that people would be on each other like animals. They would be devouring each other. We need the government. 
And obviously, we hope that they should be favorably disposed to to us as well and allow us to make the contributions that we make in in every place that we've lived throughout throughout history and continue to make. Um, so now, let's go further. So, so let's get to the Torah that, that I mentioned from the Svasemis. It's beautiful thought. So if the Torah is infinite, and if, you, even if you try and you're learning 18 hours a day or whatever it is, you, you still can't finish the Torah. So what was this person who wanted to become Jewish, what did he have in mind when he said, teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot? And what did Rabbi Akiva have in mind when he told him back what's repugnant to other people, what's repugnant to you, don't do to other people? Okay. So, so, so the Sfasemis points out a, a famous Torah and he applies it to this situation in a, just a, you know, what, you, what you're going to hear here is not just, in, in my opinion, not just inspiration and, 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 and a wonderful lesson, but you're going to see, and I, I use this word very consciously, the art, the artistry of Hasidic thought. Okay? So just in terms of just becoming a connoisseur of methodology, just try to listen to how beautiful, how beautifully this thought is constructed. Okay? Because Hasidus is not just deep and everything like that, but it's also actually beautiful. All right? When you really hit it right, when you're a great Rebbe and you hit it right, wow. So again, in my opinion, this is one of those thoughts. So just be aware of the, the, the dynamics of the thought, not just what it's saying. Okay? So, so, so we know in terms of the Hebrew letters that the word for truth in Hebrew is emet. It's aleph, mem, tav. And if you're familiar with the shapes of the Hebrew letters, because we learn many, many teachings from the shapes of the Hebrew letters. Okay, remember, our, our mystical tradition is that God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Okay, so the shapes of them are, are very significant. And the, the sages from the Gomorrah learned many lessons from the way they're shaped. So the word for truth, which is one of the hallmark words in Torah, because we say Torah met that the Torah itself is truth. Okay, so if the Torah is being described as truth, truth is a very important word. And every aspect of it is going to be important, including the shapes of the letters themselves. So now, if you can picture the letter Aleph, it has two feet, right? If something, if, if you want to stand solidly, you have to remember, even in English, you have an expression. We're going to teach him to stand on his own two feet, right? That's the, that's the essence of stability, Okay. So Aleph has two legs, all right? The letter Mem, the next letter of Emet, has two legs as well, okay? The letter Taf also has two legs. So in terms of, in terms of being a grounded word, nothing is more grounded than Emet because all three letters have two feet on them, and that's the essence of solidity. Okay. Now, the sages contrast the word emet, truth, with the word sheker, which means lies or falsehood. And very interestingly, sheker, which is shin, kuf, and resh, all boil down to a point. Okay? The letter shin comes down to a point. The letter kuf comes down to a point, And the letter resh also comes down to a single point. And so the sages comment that this word falsehood has no eternality to it because its foundation is the essence of unstable and shaky. Because it's only standing, each of the letters is only standing on one foot, so to speak, it can be blown over and knocked down at any moment. Now, look how, how the Sfasemis applies this classic teaching to understand this episode in the Talmud. When the person who's coming to convert says, 
teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot, what was he asking? And this is soul-shaking. He says, teach me the Torah. I'm going to become Jewish under the condition that you can teach me how to survive in a world of lies. Right? Because the whole realm, this whole dimension that we live in, where Hashem is concealed in this world, it's a world of lies. And so he says, please, it doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist, but we've got, we've got free choice. And the illusion that everything opposite, this world is upside down. We live in an upside down world. I think you all know that. I don't think I have to explain it further, but I will. I'll tell you one more teaching that, that just supports this idea. It's another episode in the Talmud. I don't think this Fasemis brings us, but it's just to make the point so you understand. So one of the sons of one of the sages, I'm forgetting the name, I apologize, had a, what we call today a near-death experience. And he basically passed out, basically died, and uh, he was revived. And he woke up, and they said to him, well, you know, what did you see? And he said, I saw that this world that we live in right now is completely upside down that the people who are on the bottom here are on the top in the next world, and the people who are on the top in this world are on the bottom in the next world. That's what he said. So what does it mean? What does it mean? I, I came up with an explanation, and Brooksha Kavanti, I saw that Rav Moshe Feinstein said the same thing. So, so I'll say this in Rav Moshe's name, but I'm going to put it in my own words, which is the following, and I'll give you an example. It doesn't mean that the people who we regard as holy, like tzaddikim, in this world are on the bottom in the next world. That, that's not what it means. We're talking more in terms of like, kind of like broader society, secular society, and things like this. People who are sort of like, he's got this big house and he runs this big corporation and things like this. We're talking about someone like that being at the top of this world and yet the bottom of the next world. Okay, it's not always the case. It's always going to be a case-by-case -case kind of situation. But let me give you the key to understand and to apply this thought, okay? So understand the following example. This is my example. Imagine there's a race between two people, okay? And one person has a long stretch of sunny road, perfectly paved. It goes from now for miles and miles and miles and miles, okay? No obstacles. Now imagine this person is racing against another person. And the other person, there's storm clouds and it's raining and there's thunder and lightning. There's ditches. There are mines, bombs planted. There are barbed wire. There's barbed wire. There are people shooting live ammunition over his head. Right? Now, the referee is standing by and he says, on your marks, get set, go. <laughs> what, what kind of race is that? Really, honestly, what kind of race is that? So at the, at the end of a period of time, right, this person's run, you know, five miles on the smooth road, and the other's gotten 100 yards. So who is the honored one among those two? Well, five miles, you know, you can't, that's so much more than 100 yards. It's ridiculous. He blew, he blew him away. You know, I, I saw on a greeting card the other day, a, a great greeting card. I really like this. It said, I'm so far behind, I think I'm first. <laughs> so, so anyway, you know, it's, this, is, this, is, this is not even, it's, it's pathetic what this person did compared to what the other person did. Okay, but now imagine the following. You see, what we're talking about really is 
is people from two different two different sets of life's circumstances. This person who's got the smooth road, right, who is that person? That's a person who grew up in a in a, in a, in a safe neighborhood, got a good education, had good health, had good parents, had, you know, they, there, there was a, a livelihood, the person had his needs met, whatever he wanted, he was given the best of whatever he needed, and everything like that. He was natively intelligent, he, he had good social skills, and he was able to really progress. So that's the person who ran five miles. But you know what? With all of those advantages, that person was supposed to run 20 miles. Five miles. It's like a joke. You had all that? You had all that to give the world? You had all that to give your family? You had all that to give your community? And this is what you came up with? With all of those advantages? This is what you contributed? Five miles? What a joke. So a person like that who is so honored in this world and is, you know, seems to have the best of absolutely everything, that person is going to be judged against their own potential. And when they fall shockingly short, in the next world, they're going to get the appropriate place, which is something that is not going to correlate with where they were in terms of their position in this world. And who's the other person? The other person is someone who didn't have anything, had a broken family, had learning disabilities, had all sorts of, lived in a horrible neighborhood, didn't have any sort of community support. And this person kept on going. It's like, you ran a hundred yards? You were supposed to go ten feet. You were supposed to go ten feet and give up. You made it a hundred yards? That's unbelievable. You're a hero. And then this is a person who people probably didn't give any honor to, any anything to, during their lifetime. But they kept on going and they kept on trying. And in the next world they go, wow, you far outstripped like everyone. So, so this is what it means when we talk about this world being upside down. And by the way, you have to hear an example like that and you have to ask yourself the question, which category do I fall in? And you have to, and I'm speaking to myself now, believe me, sort of like look at your own life with heavenly eyes and, and try to anticipate what is expected of each one of us, you know? I remember my mother, whose yurt site is this week, Sarachaya Basari HaKoyin, she, I, I remember very, very clearly walking in the, we were, I grew up in New York City, we were walking in a, I think it was, I know it was a subway station and there's like a long, if you want to go from like the IRT to the shuttle in 42nd Street, you have to walk like three blocks underground if you, if you know that walk. And I remember there was like this billboard there and it was talking about IQs. And I remember my mother saying very sharply to me, in a very, really a very tough way, that your, whatever your IQ is, it's, it's meaningless. It's what you do with it. You know? And, and that's, uh, that's the truth. And that, that, that just applies to everything. You know? So this world is upside down. And the person who wanted to convert said to Hillel, this world of sheker, this world of lies, this world which stands on one feet like the shin and the kuf and the resh, sheker, teach me how to be successful. If you can teach me how to be successful in this world of lies, which, would, is, which is what it means while standing on one foot, if you can teach me while standing on one foot, this world of lies, how to be successful in this world, then I'll follow your path. And Hillel says back to him, what's repugnant to you, don't do to other people. Meaning to say, if you're going to get through it, 
If you're going to get through this world, you need a friend. If you're going to get through this world, you need a community. You can't do it with you can't do it by yourself. You cannot do it by yourself. And if you think you can, good luck. Good luck. Maybe you can, but it's not the way to do it. So Ira, let's demonstrate the the next part. So this is uh, this is a beautiful thing. I'll try to describe it in case you're listening to this instead of here right now. So so I Rabbi Shalom brought, brought this part, which was very beautiful. So he, he stood up and I stood up and he said, we're both just going to stand on one leg, right? So if you come stand next to me, and we're just standing on one leg right now, he said, so how long can you actually maintain that, right? But now, if we put our arms around each other, right, how long can we maintain that? A really long time. A really long time. So that creates friendship, community, creates this level of stability that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. You see, it says in the Talmud that when you cut an onion, you shouldn't begin by cutting off the roots. Okay? So... And it says, although we don't really hold by a lot of the, these health dynamics as much because we say the nature of the world has changed since then, so we don't really hold that it's bad to your health, for your health so much. Nonetheless, if you can not begin cutting an onion by cutting off the roots of it, it's, it's a good practice to maintain. But I thought to myself, if how you cut an onion... In other words, if we're so connected to an onion that it affects us, can you imagine how connected we are to each other? I mean, that's an amazing thing. We really are one soul. It's not, it's not a platitude. It's not, it, it, we really are all one soul. So when you connect with each other, you're connecting with yourself, you know? You know, I, sometimes I say to people who are getting married, this idea that, that, you know, sometimes a person thinks that, you know, I'm me and you're you, and I'm adding a new wing to my house, right? Because I'm this structure and you're that structure, and now my house is larger. But I think it's something else. I think... When a man and a woman get married, we know that they were always one soul. But what's happening now is you're now being given keys to explore aspects of your house that were always there that you never had entrance to before. Right? Because everyone knows when you're in a marriage situation, you know, you're always being, you know, the, it's like the turning kaleidoscope. You're always being put into new situations that you don't anticipate or expect. And, but this isn't something that's being imposed on you. This is you. You know, there's no... What we, when we say we, but that's the new I. Right? I means we now. When you think about me, it's we. There's no more me in the, in the old school sense anymore. There's no more I in the old school sense anymore. So... So that's, but that's all of us. Because if we all share one soul, we're all soulmates. So this is all of us. So this is the only way that we can get through. And I saw, you know, right now a new field in the, in the academic world. Thank God. They call it positive psychology. But really what it is in layman's terms is it's, it's, the, it's the study of happiness. The world is now taking happiness very seriously. And because they're realizing that all of the material success that we've had, you know, it hasn't necessarily led to an increase of happiness. And so now people are getting serious about happiness and trying to figure what makes people happier. 
And one of the studies that I saw, and I'm just paraphrasing it, so, but, but this is the idea anyway, is that if you're around people, and I'm talking about going to, um, to shul on Shabbos, you know, to, to be becoming part of a, your, your, your neighborhood community in a real way, an active member, if you're around people like that, it adds something like, I don't know, I'm making up this number, but something like $75,000 to your, to your annual income or something like this in terms of happiness. There's some like enormously surprisingly large jump that you make in terms of your happiness factor if you want to just measure it in terms of like um, annual income. Because unfortunately, you know, I haven't mentioned it in a while, but one of the campaigns I, <laughs> I'd like to see, you know, put in the world is this horrific phrase that I, I still see in newspapers and magazines, and I hear it in conversation among among decent people, this is the most undecent phrase. When they talk about someone, how, how wealthy someone is, and they use this phrase, he's worth $3 million. He's worth $10 million. He's worth? He's, first of all, he might not be worth $0.10. Cents. That's, that's number one. Or he might be worth trillions. You know, but this idea of correlating someone's worth with their assets is horrific. No decent person should ever use that phrase. And, and as, a, as a further thought, this idea of rich, you know, if you want to say the person has money or the person has a lot of cash, right? Be very particular what word you use to describe someone's net holdings. Because we have to reclaim this word rich. Because <clears throat> Western society has used this concept of net worth, of worth and rich, to define and to, to imprison and to terrorize. I mean, just really, I mean, the, the, the societal power that, that these terms yield is really out of whack. It's way out of whack. Rich means the Torah's definition, being semeach bechelko, being happy with what you have. There are people who have holdings that are mind-boggling, and they're miserable. They're miserable. And there are people who don't have two pennies to rub together, who are Happy, genuinely happy. So, so there is no correlation. There is no correlation. And, and so rich means being happy with what you have. You know, Reb Shlomo, I was remembering, used to use a, a phrase to describe certain people and situations. He would often, in his, um, when he would be telling over a Hasidic story or something like that, and there was a poor person he would say, you know, he was, he, he was too poor to live and too rich to die, <laughs> right? So a lot of people find themselves in that, that in-between. Too poor to live and too rich to die, you know? But, but one of the ways out of it is, is community. When you're around other people and you're around the same people and things like that, and you're in a setting where... There's a completely different paradigm at work where it's just sort of like nothing's being expected of you. You just want to connect with, with God, with the universe, with each other and everything like that. And nothing else is up for grabs, you know? That's a very liberating environment, very beautiful place to be. So, so again, the person who wants to convert comes to Hillel and says, how am I going to make it through, standing on one leg, meaning how am I going to make it through this world of lies where everything is upside down? And so Hillel tells him back, basically, you've got to have good friends. You need good friends. If we have each other, we can make it through together. And that's the truth. So I want to share one more idea with you. 
different idea, but it's something that I was thinking about. So truth is, I'm still working on it a little bit, but I just want to share with you this idea. I told you that we're beginning a new book of the Torah. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinated me, and I've mentioned it in a bunch of different talks, but I'm going to say something new right now. But just to review the concept, because I really love this concept a lot, is that there were 42 stops between Egypt and Israel that we made as a people. And this number 42 you see in a lot of surprising places. Like, for instance, the Shema, if you count the Shema, or rather, I don't know if it includes the Shema or if it's right in the Via Hafta. Oh, no, no, it's just the Via Hafta. Okay, the, okay, anyway. If you look at the first uh, blessing of Shemona Esrei, beginning Baruch Hashem, right, and ending with Magen Avraham, there's 42 words in that. In the Via Hafta, the second paragraph of Shema, there's also 42 words in that. And this number 42 comes up over and over and over again in, in, in amazing places. Um, anyway, so the Baal Shem Tov says that, there, that just like we made 42 stops from Egypt to Israel, and the travels from Egypt to Israel represents basically this world going from a state of exile to a completed, perfected state. So it's a microcosm of world history, those 42 stops. And that even more significantly, each one of us in our own lives till today makes 42 stops. So how do you understand that? Maybe it's address changes, maybe it's job changes, maybe it's significant relationships, maybe it's spiritual levels. I'm not exactly sure how that 42 is calculated. But each one of us also makes 42 stops. Okay? So... So what got me thinking about this was someone um, was, was uh, burying their mom. I made a shiva call this week. And they got me thinking, you know, all of the uh, Jewish customs sur surrounding um, the transition from this world physically to the next world, you know, death and dying, we should all live long, are so deep. All the customs are so, so deep. And one of the ones, people don't talk about it so much, but one of the ones which is really, really interesting is when they take the aron, meaning the coffin. I mean, how beautiful, by the way, just as an aside, is the fact that the word aron, the word for coffin, that's, that's awesome. Because if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know really the word Aaron is really where we keep the Torah. You know? That, that, this is called the Aaron HaKodesh, the Holy Aaron. So, translated as Ark, really, right? So, can you imagine that a person's coffin is called an Aaron? Why is a person's coffin called an Aaron? Because they're saying each human being is a Torah. That, 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 that's, that's what the, the language is saying. So, so that's, our, that's, our, that's the dignity that we confer among each other and the way that we honor each other, that we treat each other in a very real sense like a Torah scroll. That's why a coffin is called an aron. That's an amazing covet. That's an amazing honor to a human being. So when, when they take the aron and they're about to inter it, so in other words, they're bringing it from the hearse right now to the, to the actual grave to be lowered down, they walk and they stop seven times. Okay? They walk a few steps, they stop. Walk a few steps, stop. Walk a few steps, stop. They do it seven times on the way to the actual interment. So I thought to myself, you know, why, why seven times? Why seven times? So seven, you know, is a very big number in Torah. Seven is a notion of completeness. The world was created in seven days. In the musical scale, we have 
seven notes. There are many examples of seven being the essence of completeness. But seven also represents Shabbos. And Shabbos represents the Garden of Eden. And so the idea is that this person is on their way to the Garden of Eden right now. Right? And people shouldn't get confused, by the way. Because I know, I know some people get confused by this. When we say the Garden of Eden, we don't mean Adam and Eve's Garden of Eden. Okay? What we mean is what's called the Olam Hanashamos, the world of souls. That's also called Garden of Eden, but that's not the Garden of Eden that we're talking about in the beginning of the Torah. Just so you don't get confused. That's just an important distinction. Okay? Anyway, so, so these seven steps, these seven stops, are that person going to the Garden of Eden, right? Which is Shabbos, because Shabbos is compared to the Garden of Eden. And the Messianic period is called the Great Shabbos. Okay? So then I was thinking, you know, so that's like the ultimate perfection, the ultimate completion. And I was thinking back to this number when she was telling me about the seven stops. I thought to myself, wow, you know, we made 42 stops in the desert. And 42 is seven times six. And I thought, wow, you know what? There's two types of walking in this world. There's the walking that we do on the level of seven. That's the Shabbos type of walking. And there's the walking that we do on the level of six, which is the days of the week, the work week type, type walking. And they're mixed together. And you need both in order to arrive. You need the six days of the week type walking. And you need the seventh day of the week type walking which may be the not walking within the walking, right? And that's the only way that you can get to the 42. That's the only way that you can make it to the end. You need the seven and you need the six. And I thought, let me even go further into that idea. What's seven? Seven is maybe when you get it right. You know, lucky seven. <laughs> Come on, seven. You know, I was thinking just, I don't know why this came to me, but I was thinking just of an example. Someone called me up who I don't know well, but who I have tremendously high regard for. They had just written a book, and I don't know why they called me for this, but they said, listen, I just wrote a book, Can You Get Me Into People Magazine? I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> how am I going to get you in People Magazine? Are you serious, you know? And I got off the phone with them. And then I thought, you know something? My college roommate writes for People magazine. He doesn't, he doesn't anymore, but he did at the time. And I thought, I'll give him a call. She and her book got into People magazine. <laughs> you know? And the person was thanking me so much. And I was just bewildered that it actually worked. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, so often in life you want to do something nice for someone. But it doesn't always work out, you know? And I was just like stunned that this actually worked. And so I, to me that's like the level of seven. That's like when it actually works, you know? And then you also have this concept of six, where you work really hard but you don't necessarily see the results yet. Yet. You don't necessarily see the results. And, you know, along those lines, one of my absolute favorite teachings from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who says that whatever direction, wherever a Jew heads, he's walking toward Israel. Even if he's heading in the opposite direction, he's still heading toward Israel. Right? Because the truth is that we don't know. And as long as a person is sincerely motivated and is trying, they're eventually, they're eventually going to get there. Even if we don't see the results right away. You know, as a related thought, 
I saw from Reb Shlomo in the name of one of the Rebbes. I'm not sure who. I think it may have been... Um, uh, I'm not sure. Okay, it'll come to me. Anyway, the Torah is like this. That it says that before a person does anything, the angels in heaven announce what the person is about to do. So, if that's, if that's the case, what do they say before someone does something bad? Right? Before someone does something that they're not supposed to do. So the teaching is that what they announce in heaven is that this Jew is about to make a new pathway for tshuva. <laughs> right? Tshuva means to return to God. So in other words, even before this person has done anything wrong, already what they have in mind is how this is going to lead them back onto the proper path to do the right thing. Right? So this is like, this is like walking on the, on the level of six. Right? So, so, and it's also heaven and earth because six is really the work days of the week. That's really where we're building up this dimension, this, this world, this earth. And seven is already Shabbos, it's already the next world, right? And we're fusing those two things together. So that's why I think seven times six, heaven and earth coming together is 42, that's the journey from Egypt into Israel. And that's fusing everything together because what is the land of Israel? The land of Israel is heaven on earth. That's what it is in a very real way. You see that in, in many places. That's not, that's not hyperbole. That's, that's real. That's why you're supposed to, before you go to Israel, even on a vacation, do tshuva before you go to Israel because the din is higher in Israel. Because there's a higher revelation of holiness in Kedusha. So it really is like heaven on earth. So you have to prepare before you go. So we'll just wrap it up. And Hashem should bless us really that all of our walking, all of our efforts, all of our community work, all of our reaching out to each other, all of our standing on one foot in this world should be anchored and stabilized by holding on to each other. And that we should see more sevens than sixes. <laughs> and even the sixes should turn around to sevens, right? And we should really be able to see the realization of all of our efforts and of all of our prayers and of all of our love.